Blog Talk Radio. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave and ancient land to me. tonight and that the show is going to uh, go on as uh, almost planned. We are one day uh, removed from the time we were supposed to broadcast last week. I appreciate those of you who have joined us on short notice. Um, What happened last week was just a a glitch with uh, BTR. Their systems were uh, were down, but they seem to have uh, fixed them, which is always encouraging. I would expect that we'll have Kirk uh, later in the program, but uh, I'll start with a couple of items in the news. The first of those, I don't know if you're following it, but uh, there was a Russian priest. Oh, he is a pretty fellow. Pure white hair, white beard. He wears all the fancy Christian robes. Uh, He stands in front of of, uh, those iconic pictures of of a halo over uh, Mother Mary and and baby Jesus, okay, he's a blonde, and he is wearing his uh, christening gown. So baby Jesus, he is a he is a Roman uh, Christian, uh, is the way he is presented. Well, this guy was the father of the century. He uh, adopted seventy children. Isn't that lovely of him? Turns out, he raped most of them. So he's going to spend, uh, I think it's 20 years in the uh, the slammer. There's an interesting story out of the United States Marine Corps. Um, the gentleman, uh, I think his last name is uh, Scheller, he uh, was uh, discharged from the United States Marine. Uh, he was a lieutenant colonel, uh, which means he had uh, considerable rank. He served in Afghanistan. He was uh, released on uh, Thursday, December 23rd. Uh, He is uh, uh, not smart enough to realize that the problem really is the U.S. military. He says, I want to sincerely thank the Marine Corps for forging me into a man. Yeah, great. Listen to what the Marine Corps uh, did to him. He stated the obvious. 
wearing the uniform, uh, he did a uh, uh, social media post uh, that said uh, abandoning the U.S. Air Force base in Afghanistan in the capital of, of Kabul prior to getting everyone out was not the brightest thing the U.S. military ever did. For pointing out something that all of us know was true, uh, the United States Marine Corps decided to relieve him of command. Then they slandered the voice of reason as homicidal and suicidal. That's directly from the United States Marine Corps' public affairs team. He was imprisoned. Uh, he was called a flight risk. He had his medical records and details of the uh, investigation leaked to the media. This firestorm began when uh, Scheller, uh, dressed in uniform, posted a video that uh, uh, said that the ISIS-K, the Islamic State uh, bombing, suicide bombing, at Kabul airport that left 13 U.S. service members dead and 169 uh, Afghan civilians dead, all of which uh, took place because, well, we had a disorderly withdrawal from the country after spending more than 10 years there. He uh, said, I'm not saying we've got to be in Afghanistan forever, although a lot of people thought we ought to. Uh, but did any of you throw your rank on the table and say it's a bad idea to evacuate Bagram Airfield, a strategic air base, before we bothered to evacuate everyone? Did anyone do that? And when do you think, when didn't you think to do that? Did anyone raise their hand and say, we completely messed this up? So the Marine Corps' response for the man just stating the obvious is, your actions have harmed good order and discipline with the service as well as publicly discredited the U.S. Marine Corps. No, you idiot. It was the military and the commanders-in-chief that discredited the U.S. military and rendered what I predicted more than 10 years ago, back in the fall of 2001 would be the killing fields. Utter embarrassment. Turning a bad situation worse is what I said on many, many hundreds, if not thousands of radio programs back then, predicting everything that transpired. And yet they said, your narcissistic acts can serve only to erode the rule of law. Isn't it um, disgusting? that the United States Marine Corps will attack someone for telling the truth. Uh, truth doesn't play very well in the military, though. Remember, I wrote a book uh, in um, 2002, 2003 uh, about uh, all the terrorist acts that uh, took place and around the world up to that point, but also on the United States invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. And what I discovered was that the United States military lied about every single death. There wasn't a single fatality in Iraq or Iran during those first two years that the United States didn't lie about. Um, many of them were friendly fire. 
Many of them were uh, sending uh, troops into harm's way for no reason, just dunderhead moves. Many were accidents, but no one was actually shot and killed by the either the Afghani military or by the Iraqi military, not one. And so to make it look like we were fighting bad guys in, in uniform, the U.S. military lied. But they don't like it when you expose them as liars. Too long ago, well, I guess it's been a while now, but right after COVID-19 first appeared, uh, what I said is that yeah, this, this is a really bad version of the flu. Uh, it is a serious uh, uh, problem, uh, but this is really a long way from being what you would call a pandemic, because in a pandemic, you need to have much higher mortality rates. And I said that by the time this is all over and the dust settles, COVID-19 will, uh, will be um, maybe twice to three times more deadly than the flu. And the flu kills one in a thousand people that it infects COVID-19. Uh, looks like it's going to wind up being two people in a thousand. And that's a little higher than, uh, or a little lower than what you read if you just put the, the numbers that you see worldwide, numbers of infections, numbers of, of uh, fatalities, because 80% of people who are infected with COVID-19 are asymptomatic and they don't ever get tested. So if you've got 80% not tested, then the number of people who are dying as a percentage of those who are infected is much lower than what is being published. Uh, that's about what the numbers are going to be. And I also said that by the end of all of this, we will have recognized that the shutdowns, depriving people of their livelihoods and their freedoms, was foolish and counterproductive. It will be far more costly than the number killed. And I don't want to underestimate this. I mean, it's going to end up being over a million Americans and probably six or seven million people worldwide that are going to die while having COVID, with COVID being one of the contributing factors to of their death. So one of the most liberal um, mayors in the United States is uh, Dee Blasso. He's the mayor of New York. He said adamantly, no more shutdowns. We've been through them. Dating. We cannot go through another shutdown. That's the reality. Liberals wanted to determine essential versus non-essential businesses. They wanted to, as the, the communists do, try to control business. They wanted to control people's lives. And in America, we got a taste, as did many people around the world, of what communism is really like. And it destroyed our currency. It destroyed our economy. It destroyed people's character. It destroyed supply uh, chains. We're short now of food. We're short now of basic supplies, and transportation is forever messed up. And at the time, what I said is that... that Politicians have no concept of business, and they do not understand 
how free enterprise works and that there is no such thing as a non-essential business. They, we all contribute to the greater whole. And by shutting certain businesses down, they destroyed it all. There's a real mess going on. It's another object in the news and um, uh, in the Ukraine. The United States and Europe are trying to blame Putin for uh, being belligerent and are threatening all manner of sanctions on Russia if uh, Russia invades the Ukraine. And Russia is saying, wake up, folks. This is the Cuban Missile Crisis in reverse. And the Cuban Missile Crisis, the United States had a conniption fit saying, Russia, you can't turn Cuba into a militarized base poised to attack America. They're too close to us, too close to our borders. And if you don't get your militarization out of Cuba, it's going to be war. Khrushchev blinked. He withdrew. The United States made a commitment that it would never invade Cuba in return. Well, the same thing has happened to Ukraine. The United States created a, the riots that overthrew the elected government. And ever since that time, we have thrown all manner of billions of dollars of wasteful currency at this incredibly incompetent. And we've armed them to the teeth, and we want them to be part of NATO. And Russia is saying, no, we don't want American or European arms on our border. We do not want you to militarize it. We have no interest in you making the Ukraine part of NATO. And if you're going to do that, then you will leave us no other opportunity. This is the Cuban Missile Crisis and reverse. And yet very few people seem to be able to understand it. They all want to say, oh, Putin, Putin, bad, bad. No. Putin's no wonder boy, but I'll tell you what. The problem here is NATO and the United States. You probably know, but uh, Build Back Better, which uh, has absolutely nothing to do with building. It is nothing but a wealth distribution plan. It is nothing but uh, socialism verging on communism. Uh, it is just a the democratic, liberal, progressive wish list of how they would recraft the economy so that it ceases to function and that everyone becomes dependent on government and therefore on them. Now, there's a senator from West Virginia that just says, no, I'm not going to vote for it. And the White House knows that, that the congressional elections and then the next presidential election probably depend upon it because Democrats bribe their voters. They don't want people to, to vote who can read or who actually understand economics who actually understand currency, who actually understand business, who have any grasp of world affairs. No, they want people to vote for the party that is bribing them through wealth redistribution. And so they recognize that Build Back Better had either better happen or their future and hold on Washington is exceedingly 
Salem. Well, I don't see uh, Kirk in the uh, in the queue of uh, callers at at this point, so um, we'll continue and resume in the text that we were reviewing this time. Uh, well, I guess eight days ago. Uh, what we've been doing is presenting a comprehensive review of Kaporum. And the best place to turn to have an appreciation of Kaporum uh, is Zachariah. The entire book is about Kaporum. You know, that is the reason why we find that whole description of Yosha, the high priest, uh, having to be uh, uh, dressed up, having to uh, have... Um, uh, his clothing and his headband washed and purified so that a uh, man that really was highly corrupted could perform uh, the priestly business of Kaporum, where the uh, blood of the goat and the bull is placed on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant is a Kaporath, which is from the same root of Kaporum, which is the name of the Day of Reconciliations. And then following that, we have the presentation of the two witnesses and of this enormous scroll or, or flying message board, if you will, that is likely conveying what we're talking about right now, making Yahweh's message pertinent for people worldwide. And then from there, everything is about Yahweh's return and holding people accountable, uh, embracing his children. We were on Zechariah, the 12th chapter, ninth statement at the end of our program last week. It reads as follows. And it will come about at that time that I will seek to hold responsible and thus accountable by choosing to decimate and exterminate all of the Gentiles who have come against Jerusalem. So God's not saying here he's going to kill every Gentile on earth, but what he does say is that every Gentile who has come against Jerusalem and I think that's probably going to include those who have advocated boycotts, those who have been anti-Semitic, those who have been conspiratorial, those who have lobbied against Israel. I would think that the jihad squad in Washington, and I mean that in the sincerest form of a compliment, since jihad, they tell us, is a spiritual struggle, are all going to be in some serious trouble because of God's position on this. This also shatters the myth that God wants to save everyone such that none should perish. Be advised. Should you be among the great majority who would give J Jerusalem to the fake Estinians, your days are numbered. Now, to have done something such that accountability necessitates your extermination, I think that qualifies as a fairly serious crime from God's perspective. And 
make no mistake, God is the judge. He is the executioner. Now, those confused by liberal uh, jargon, the progressive types, who are unable to fathom the compassion in these words, because they have been led to believe that hate is the enemy of humankind, when in actuality, my friends, hate is a virtue. God hates, and God is the most loving individual in the universe. Love necessitates knowing who, when, how, and why we should oppose those who would seek to harm those we love. Now, for the most part, our anger, our frustration, our hate ought to uh, be directed uh, at those who are advancing um, conspiracies or political assaults, religious assaults uh, against Yahweh and his people or those that are directly trying to harm our families. And second, uh, our anger, our righteous indignation ought to be expressed using words and as many of those words as possible ought to be Yahweh's words. Prior to this response from God, there has always been a measure um, in the or time, I should say, has always been measured in millennia, centuries, uh, decades. Um, but now we're dealing with days, fleeting moments. This is the last opportunity to call the goats, if you will, from the sheep, determining who stays and who goes. So while man has been doing this for thousands of years and doing it indiscriminately and doing it for all the wrong reasons, when we see terms like decimate, exterminate, annihilate, abolish, and they're associated with God, even within the limited parameters of defending Jerusalem from those who would otherwise kill his people, it may strike some as harsh, even extreme. But this is actually an act of kindness. And it's even mild considering the circumstances. Yahweh is extending a life by truncating another. The life he is extending is worthwhile. The lives that he is ending are not. The lives he is ending were going to cease in short order anyway. The lives he is extending will live forever. It is also fair to annihilate those who sought to exterminate his family. You know, God is responsible for conceiving the lives that he is now terminating, which puts him in a very different situation. That's one of the reasons I say that all of these numbskulls that speak as if they're representing God, and they go off to, um, they're just absolutely stupid because it isn't their life to take. First of all, they're always wrong. They don't know God. They have no idea what he's interested in. Uh, their agenda is always back asswards. But the fact of the matter is, God is actually responsible for the lives that he is now terminating. 
meaning that for them, it is still a net gain. If you are Johnny Jihadist, Abdul Akbar, and you grow to, uh, to 20 years old, and you don a suicide vest to go in and murder some Jews, and God kills you before you can do it. You actually had a net gain of 20 years that you would not have otherwise had had need not created you. You got no reason to complain. Now, he could send them all to Sheol. Some he may do that. Now, in the text of Yom Kippurim, understand that Yahweh's return is uh, either Reconciliations Day or Judgment Day, all depending on what or who brought these people to Jerusalem. If, if you are among the remnant of Yehuda and Yisrael, who is finally looking up to Yahweh, respecting Yahweh as God, accepting his Torah as guidance, embracing his covenant, then this is the day of reconciliations. If you are still being religious, if you're still being obnoxious, if you're still being political, if you're still being conspiratorial, it's over for you. You know, I receive countless emails from conspiratorial types, uh, which are just desperate to get me to agree to whatever it is, whatever conspiracy that they're advocating. And and most of them I just delete and and, uh, then block the the account. But they they never go away. They're, They're just desperate to find somebody that has some credibility that will say, yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. But it just doesn't. And no matter how much evidence you bring towards whatever it is that they're promoting, proving that, no, it's not valid, they just keep on going. Well, this is Yahweh's line in the sand. He's, frankly, he's angry. And he's not going to take it anymore. And he's just putting an end to it all. So having removed the pathogens from his home, Yahweh was now prepared to fulfill Yom Kippurim. This is what the uh, the text uh, says. And I think we do have Kirk, so I'll, I'll let hey. Kirk explain uh, both Jerusalem, uh, Ruach, Spirit, and Chen, three words that I know he analyzed using the pictographical alphabet um, during the, uh, the week. It reads, I will pour out Wa Shafak. I will cause an outpouring profusely expending upon the house, the bath of Dod, the beloved, commonly known as David, representing Israel. I don't know how many people recognize that, but many of the stories that we're told about Dod, well, um, no doubt occurred as they're told, the story isn't told to us to tell us about Dod, but instead about Israel. You know, this is the man of great promise, a man who was right most of his life, but a man who also um, ended his life in a bit of despair. Um, He never 
rejected Yahweh, never um, walked away from Yahweh, but the, the inspiration that enabled him to write such spectacular psalms and to defend Yisrael faded with, uh, with time. Now, he started at eight years old. That's, uh, that is understandable. There's only so much anyone can endure in, in terms of that much of attention and, and being in the spotlight that long. But so much of what we're told was less than ideal with Dode represents Yisrael. In his life, we see the life of his people. Just as he is coming back, so are Israelites. So I will pour out upon the house of Dode and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the source of guidance on reconciliation from Yara, the source of teaching and guidance and shalom, restitution, redemption, and renewal. The spirit, Ruach, the maternal and set-apart manifestation of Yahweh's power, of genuine mercy, compassion, loyal love and favoritism, acceptance, chen, pleading for clemency and forgiveness, providing a petition to save, requesting a pardon. So this is just the first part of Zechariah 12.10, but there's already a lot here for us to dissect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, the actionable root of Torah, according to Yahweh, is Yara. When he introduces Torah to us, he tells us that it is Yara, a source from which teaching and guidance, instructions and directions flow. The Ruach Chen, the merciful spirit, which is being poured out of the Torah, is what is ultimately causing the reconciliation on this day. And with Yara also serving to define Jerusalem, there is yet another element of consistency with the word, the city, and the spirit working in harmony. So, Kirk, uh, I think the first word mm-hmm. that you analyzed here was Jerusalem. That's a long one. Uh, what did you find? Yes, well, let's see. We've got uh, Yahweh lifts up. That's the the. It goes Yad, Rosh, um, Wa, Shin, uh, Lam, and Mim. And so that would, if you look at it, just the letters, what they mean, and they'll be Yahweh will lift. Yahweh is lifting someone up, lifting us up. He's the one who, the one he is lifting up is Shamar, the one who's paying attention, carefully considering, and closely examining his words. And he's increasing his understanding. That would be my interpretation of the law in this particular case. And of Yahweh's uh, understanding of what? Of Yahweh's words, obviously. That's what he's focusing on, the Torah. That's followed by the letter Shin. And that is words or speech. And it leads directly to the, uh, that lead to break directly towards uh, um, the shepherd. Direct, yeah. Yes, the, the shepherd, uh, of course, yeah. the one who who protects and directs us 
um, and um, that's the lamb. And then it cleanses and purifies so that uh, that's the mem. It cleanses and purifies so that he or she might uh, enjoy eternal life. It's a cleansing thing. Yeah. Uh, so in fact, all, uh, Jerusalem is mm-hmm. the city of whom? Isn't the city of Dode? It's the city of Dove, yes. Yeah, and yes. who did Yahweh said, uh, I have, uh, have brought forth as the shepherd of my flock? <laughs> I was yeah, to get a Yeah, Dove. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And uh, when you broke them down into two, I looked up the two as well just to see. And, of course, Yara, we already know a lot about Yara being teach um, because of Torah. It's the ver- verbal word of that or the verbal uh, actionable part of the uh, word Torah. And you have, once again, you have a, a yod or yod lifting uh, lifting up. In this particular case, I'm going to call it pointing because it's actually teaching, it's instructing, it's directing someone and show them the way to which they must walk. And the, uh, and the yod is a pointing instrument in this particular case, like we would point something. And then it's followed by, once again by the roach. The attention, who is the one, someone who is paying attention and considers and examining what he has to say. And then we come to a hay, and a hay, of course, is someone who is not only standing upright or taking a stand, but also in walking in the proper directions. Um, the, the flow is obviously from right to left. So we have and also someone who's also in awe of what they're seeing, uh, which is Yahweh. Yeah, now normally if you had a the roast, the person looking, looking away from a letter in Yahweh's name, you'd say, oh, that's going to be a bad mm-hmm. thing but it's also looking towards the only right, repeated letter in Yahweh's name. So it's looking towards mm-hmm. the hay, and there's two of them, and mm-hmm. uh, it's got uh, Yahweh at our back. You know, it's uh, yeah. the old line, I've got your back. Well, yeah, Yahweh's got, you back. got the, the back of the, the Rosh, as the Rosh is uh, looking toward the observant individual standing up, reaching mm-hmm. up, uh, and uh, looking up to Yah. Yes, and that was... Uh... Uh, followed by Shalom, mm-hmm. which is the uh, Shin, Lamb, and the Mim. And that's a verb, and it means to be restored, complete, made whole, to be made right, uh, Sedek, mm-hmm. to make restitution. And the words, uh, of course, are signified by the, um, by the Shin. And then you're being led by the Lamb. The, the Lamb's letter will the shepherd, the shepherd right. staff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're being led to not only not only just life but eternal life. So it uh, it's a it's a beautiful word when you put, when you break it all down and any way you break it down. The thing that the reason that I think I've enjoyed the uh, the letters so much, the pictographs so much, is because they reinforce. I'm getting actually a little bit better at it. I'm, I really I take now I look at these things in context to what y'all was saying. It's not just a language that um, tells you how to buy bread at the store or, or give you directions to walk down the street. But in the context of the way they're used here in the Torah is amazingly helpful. I, I think one of these days I'm have to write my own lexicon of the letters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there <laughs> you go. They're, they're really, they're really uh, yeah. you know, when I first started reading your book, Yada Yada, I would I would write down all the, all the stuff that I would find on, in the lexicons. But I also started putting down your definitions. Uh, I haven't understood them, writing those down and using that more as a lexicon than uh, the lexicon. So mm-hmm. in this particular case, uh, I'm getting pretty I'm pretty certain when we get to Chen, I'll point that out. I'm getting pretty certain that these letters are very specific uh, for, Torah, for the 
<clears throat> for the use of in the Torah, more so than just the everyday conversation. So, uh, shall I go into Roche or, or uh, Ruach? Sure. Is? You want? Yeah, Ruach, Ruach I mean, is sorry. the next one. Sure. Ruach, the spirit. Okay. That obviously is a feminine manifestation of Yahweh that is set apart. We usually refer to it, these the uh, Ruach Kodesh, the set apart spirit. And it, it is uh, formed by three letters, the roach, the wa, and the chin, or the chet, rather. And you have here the, um, it is just obviously it's winds. It can be even wind patterns. I, I throw this in for a reason. Even wind patterns in their prescribed paths, because we are talking about leading you to, down the prescribed path. It's the breath of life. It also represents character and power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wrote, I wrote below here, perhaps a uh, man or a woman who carefully considers, that's the Rosh, Yahweh's prescribed path, uh, will be increased and elevated, the Wa, and then protected eternally. So, the Ruach, that's, that is her job. Yeah. Yes, she is our protector. Um, and so... Mm-hmm. The fact that it ends with the uh, the fence uh, being fenced in mm-hmm. and uh, and protected with uh, and her also her job is to increase us to augment us to enlighten and enrich us and the uh, that's the purpose of the of the wa and uh, in Hebrew mm-hmm. is to speak of that which is augmentative increase. additive uh, right. and also uh, you know it's a sign of protection the uh, the tent was made more secure, uh, therefore protecting people from the elements by the tent peg. Yeah, even, so, even, yeah, even the tent wall just from the wind alone or the, the sand blowing and so forth. So, yes, all of the above. And the, the, above. The, more sec, the more secure the tent pegs, the larger the tent, the bigger the mm-hmm. family, the better it performs. Now, yes, sir. recognizing that uh, Yahweh's approach to his people is going to be compassionate and merciful, loving and kind, providing clemency and forgiveness, which is the opposite of what he's going to do with the Gentiles who came to attack Israel, particularly Jerusalem. It does mean that Christianity's gospel of grace is mm-hmm. ridiculous, moot. It also mm-hmm. means that Judaism's approach with its countless and laborious laws uh, is ridiculous set up to this. I mean, counter to the rabbis, Yahweh is not trying or testing his people. He's loving them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yahweh's promised to pour out the spirit of acceptance upon the house of Dod, which is Yisrael. Uh, you know, typically, Yahweh... Uh, when he wants to use a pseudonym for Yisrael, we'll use uh, uh, Jacob, who was renamed Yisrael. So now the pseudonym for Yisrael is the House of Dode. And the reason for that is Dode is returning as the Masiach, as the Ra'ah shepherd, and as the Malek king. And so this is the House of Dode. Moreover, Dode is the person most uh, synonymous with Jerusalem. Uh, Dode is also the person that is best known as it relates to the house of Yahweh. He bought and prepared the Temple Mount. That's why you know, when Muslims are get up in arms and they say, we're protecting Alaska, you know, my, you know, go to hell. Pal, that 
Temple Mount was purchased by Dode. He was a Yaud. Uh, just disgusting what people will uh, will believe. Anyway, our uh, uh, this is all prophetic of what is going to be fulfilled, what's going to occur on the Day of Reconciliations. Those who have come to know, trust, rely upon Yahweh are invited into his presence by way of the spirit of acceptance, which is how reconciliation works. For the first time in 3,000 years, David's family has become God's family. At this moment and on this essential day, the chosen people will be reconciled to Yahweh as God forgives and accepts them, which, by the way, requires a lot of them. Those that are being reconciled have walked away from Judaism. They've walked away Mm -hmm. from the politics of Israel. They've laid down their arms as part of the IDF. They are no longer progressives. They're no longer conspiratorialists. They are not religious. They have accepted and are participants in the covenant. Now, this also serves as an affirmation that the translations we have provided on Kara called out Leviticus, uh, especially uh, as it relates to coming into the presence of the Isha, represent the maternal manifestation of God's fiery light. We can say this because this is Yom Kippurim. Yom Kippurim is one of the four Moed Mikra, where we're specifically asked to come into the presence of the maternal manifestation of Yah's fiery light, uh, well, now we know that the, the presence that we're, we are approaching is the Ruach, the set-apart spirit of mm-hmm. Yahweh. She is the one who purifies and enlightens and uplifts her children. One of the things that we learned uh, not all that long ago is that we've always known that fire represented the uh, one of the most tangible, visual, effective um, representations of God's presence. Yahweh, while he is more akin to light than anything that we know in our world, uh, the what comprised light was re- not known really until uh, maybe a hundred years ago, and so what God tried to express was, if you want to know me, He can't say you know me based upon the light of the sun because pagans turned the sun into a faux god. So He used fire, which was the uh, the other source of light in the ancient world. And it is that radiant energy that would help people cook their food. It turns uh, uh, the pathogens into food that would normally kill you. Uh, And it makes food not only tastier, but uh, safer to eat. Uh, It uh, also, now we know, purifies water. Um, Fire is an extraordinary thing when you're out camping. The first thing we think about is building a campfire. A campfire not only keeps the wild animals at bay, it actually keeps the buggers at bay too, like things like uh, mm-hmm. mosquitoes and the like are, uh, do not like the smoke of a fire. Uh, but the thing that we learned about fire that we 
had not thought of previously is that the, the principal role for reason we were asked to come into the presence of the fiery nature of, of uh, God's maternal uh, manifestation or presence is that fire is transformational. What fire does is it consumes that which is decaying in a material world. So organic material, our bodies, for example, that are decaying, fire transforms them into light and into energy, just as the set-apart spirit transforms our decaying mortal existence into light energy as we become the children of the covenant and become more like God. Uh, so representing God as fiery light, both at a material sense, ish and ishe, isha, in the maternal sense, is really a stroke of genius on uh, God's part. And it's also mm -hmm. invocative of uh, the spirit's garment of light. That's the wardrobe that we're adorned in the moment we are forgiven as God perfects us on matzah, the uh, uh, celebration of unyeasted bread. Now, the last word in this statement was uh, uh, takunan, which was uh, translated as pleading for clemency and forgiveness. Uh, it is based upon chen, just as we read earlier in chanan, meaning to show favor, to plead for compassion, to implore forgiveness. These actions define the role of the set-apart spirit. And they explain the reason we're invited to come into our presence on this day, the day of reconciliations. <laughs> We're also invited to do it on the most important day of the calendar for us, which is Matzah, and then again on the most important day for Yahweh, which is Yom Kippurim. The continuation of this uh, prophetic pronouncement is, well, as spectacular as the introduction was, uh, it's the most important in the prophets. In context, we now know that the Yehudim who have survived what you could refer to as the tribulation. It's the uh, uh, Sar Yaakov, the time of uh, Yaakov's mm -hmm. troubles, uh, the time that Israel is the most harassed. Now that says a lot, by the way. When you're mm -hmm. dealing with the, the worst of, of Israel's harassment, I mean, this is the nation that was hauled away by the most brutal people, probably the most brutal civilization in human history, the Assyrians. This was the, the people that were carted off into slavery by the Babylonians. These are the people that were enslaved for 400 years by the Egyptians. These are the people that, the only people to my knowledge, that were invaded three times by the Romans uh, with devastating consequences all three times. Um, savaged by them. These are the people that became the principal enemy of the Christians and were demeaned, harassed, victimized by Christianity for a better part of 2,000 years. It's the longest hate crime in human history. These are the people that uh, have endured um, many, many hundreds of years, almost 1,400 years of Islamic jihad and Islamic terrorism. 
These are the people that endured the Holocaust and the pogroms that were as bad <laughs> as the Holocaust, the Holocaust throughout uh, Europe before it uh, and during it. And yet we're told that this time, whether it is seven years or three and a half years, I suspect that the worst of Jakob's troubles is, is between 2030 and 2033, uh, that this will be crushing. And while that sounds horrible, it is actually uh, good news. It's, it's part of the story. It's not God choosing to do this, man's choosing to do it, but nonetheless, it is part of the story. Yahweh's metaphors for the things that he equates uh, as beneficial, which would be olives, which when crushed become olive oil, a source of light, a source of nourishment, a source of anointing, a source of, uh, of, of medicinal healing. Uh, grapes, which when crushed can become wine, the favorite beverage of the Torah. And of grain, which when crushed becomes bread, one of the most nourishing of foods. Well, just as those things, which are the three primary metaphors for saved souls, for uh, Passover and the benefits of, uh, of Pesach becoming uh, immortal, um, and uh, for the spirit with uh, olive oil. Yahweh's people need to be crushed before they're going to be worth a darn. Before they are become worthwhile again, they will be crushed during the time of Jacob's trouble. So while what we're heading to is going to be horrific, it's going to anger God beyond imagination, it is going to elicit the ire of his witnesses. It is already condemnable, but it's going to get worse. If it did not occur, then the number of Yehudim that are going to, would otherwise embrace Yahweh in the covenant would be hugely diminished. <laughs> so these things go hand in hand. Now the continuation of this prophetic pronouncement is, as I've said, among the most important that we will uh, read. Um, those who know the, the Yehudim who have survived, uh, they're going to Yada. They're going to Yada Yahweh. Um, and Yada Yahweh turned out to be, who would have known this when we started this 20 years ago? But that's Yahweh's primary message for the last generation. I uh, was translating the 78th Mismore, which uh, spoke of, of, of knowledge and wisdom and the skill to be discerning and to finally understand the Torah would be applicable for the last generation. And it led to a review of Yashaya, Isaiah, uh, 25 through 30 where the prophet um, speaks of a message that is going to be delivered by uh, Yada, uh, who he refers to as a goy, that he tells the survivors of Yisrael to open up, throw open the doors of your homes, of your towns, of your 
community to this guy and let him in because he knows what you need to know. And he says that this is a message for the last days, that, that Israelites who hear it support the, the writing of Yadayahu and of conveying it openly uh, to the last generation. Mm-hmm. And he says this is essential, not only because without it, there is no reconciliation, but he says it's also essential because in the end, all I've got is, uh, is suckling babes. Hey, could you imagine? Okay, so you've got Yisrael. She's come back. Some have. There's a remnant. In the end, there's going to be a significant number that are going to embrace Yahweh by name, by reputation, by Torah, by covenant. And they will have been covenant. They will have been Torah observant. They will have known Yahweh's name for about 15 seconds. Ah, probably a little more. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about days, weeks, in some cases months. How in the world are they going to celebrate Yom Kippur. They've been indoctrinated to believe it's a day of affliction. They need to know how to celebrate Yom Kippur. They need to understand what Sukkah represents and that we're returning to Eden. They need to know how to properly observe the Shabbat, which is not to deny yourself everything. They are suckling babes that at this point need a teacher. And to a large degree, that's the role that we're going to be playing. And somebody is being asked by Yah to be the voice calling out in the wilderness that makes ready not only Yah's return, but the return of his son. So with that preamble, this is what uh, the uh, what his revealed by the prophet Zechariah. The voice speaking is Yahweh's. And I will pour out upon the house of Dod and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of genuine mercy, of compassion, loyal, loyal love, acceptance, pleading for chemistry and forgiveness. So they will look to me whom by association they have pierced, and they will lament exceedingly emotional over him as one shrieks when united with someone special, making the family whole, anguished over him as one despairs over a firstborn. This is... um, It's gut-wrenching. The reason it's so gut-wrenching is that everyone the world over has gotten Dode wrong and Yosha wrong. Here are two of the three great Zoroa, and everyone, it doesn't matter if they're Jewish or Christian, the Christians are focused, fixated, on this misnomer of Yosha, and they want him to be the Son of God and the Messiah. Heck, they want him to be God. 
Mm-hmm. Hell no, he's the Passover lamb. God cannot die. God promised to provide the Passover lamb. Christians haven't a clue. Jews haven't a clue. In trying to do away with the, the impetus of, of what has been the longest hate story in human history of, the, of Christianity and its antagonism towards Jews, blaming Jews for killing their God. They want Yosha to disappear. They're right. He was not the Messiah. They're right. He's not the Son of God. The Messiah, the Son of God, is Dode, whose name here happens to have been mentioned. Yosha's was not. But in the recognition that he was not the Messiah and that he was not the Son of God, they forgot to acknowledge what he was. That he was the fulfillment of Pesach. And without the promise of Pesach being fulfilled, there is no hope of eternal life. And so what this says is that they're going to look up to the one that they pierced. Okay, yes, it was the Romans that uh, pierced him, but the Jews drew nails right into the heart of what it means to be the Passover lamb. They just as surely drove those nails into the heart of God. But so did Christians by mislabeling him, by acknowledging him with every manner of title and attribute that he did not deserve, while precluding him of the one that he actually did deserve. So, the realization for Israelites, for the house of Dod, for Yehudim, Jews, is that the Passover lamb had a name. It wasn't Yeshu. Sirzel wasn't Jesus. It wasn't their God-forsaken acronym, may his name be blotted out. It was taking Yashaya and uh, flipping the name the other way. Yosha. Putting the Yah first and the salvation, liberation second, which with Isaiah, Yashaya, it is salvation first, uh, Yahweh's name Second, salvation is from Yahweh versus Yahweh saves. And so, at this point, the remnant of Israel is not only acknowledging Yahweh's name, but they're acknowledging that it was Yahweh who served as the Passover lamb. That's why this is so profound. That's the only way there can be reconciliation. They not only need to accept the terms and conditions of the covenant, which means they have to walk away from religion and politics. Not only 
do they have to walk to God and become perfected, which is only possible if you know that he served as the Pesach lamb. It's only possible if you understand the sacrifice of his soul on matzah to unleaven our souls of the corruption of religion and politics so that we can trust and rely on Yahweh in this way. That is why they're looking up to him, accepting, trusting, relying on what he has done for us. And the reason they're crying is to think of how many souls were lost, not only failing to acknowledge this, but spitting in the face of all of this. How many Jewish souls were squandered because the religious had a vendetta? And so they're very sad. Yes, they're joyful that their God has returned and they're part of his family, but exceedingly sad for all that has been lost. And so it's a bittersweet reunion. You know, it is a happy moment for Yahweh as he reconciles his relationship with his children. And I think it's even a happy moment for him as he rids the world of, of all of those who have come to oppose his children. And, mm-hmm. and I think he's delegating recompense so that he's not going to be bothered with it, so that it, it happens as it should. But I think he's delegating that responsibility so he can celebrate this reunion with his children. And within five days, all of the angst, all of the anxiety, all of the pain, all of the sadness of what has been lost over the millennia will be gone and we'll be celebrating uh, Sukkah together, the, um, the time of camping out with God. So while this statement destroys two religions, it is marvelous for the relationship. It was written to express the kind of emotion experienced when a family reunites after a long and troubled separation. I, I'm here to tell you that if you have been estranged from a son or daughter or parent or whatever, uh, where there's been bitterness for years, and that individual walks back into your home and embraces you, you're going to cry. There is, there is no way humanly possible that you're not going to cry. And that's what's happening here. You know, they are acknowledging Yahweh's role in the fulfillment of Passover. Yehudim are, are acknowledging God's fulfillment during the Seder. In this case, Shaphat speaks of being exceedingly emotional, ecstatic to the point of tears. Similarly, uh, Mishved is more about shrieking than crying, even when they are tears of joy. Yahweh was predicting a reunion. Uh, that is the primary definition of uh, Yachad, it's from Yachid, 
which is uh, is the verbal root, and it speaks of uh, of reuniting uh, with a beloved and special child. Well, that's also going to happen here because Yahweh's firstborn son, Yahweh's chosen one, literally the son of God, is Dode, and he is returning with him. In fact, there are comments where, and Yahshua, uh, Yahshua gives you goosebumps because uh, mm-hmm. so much of it is also focused on this same event, the uh, Day of Reconciliations. And it speaks of how beautiful the king is going to be upon his return. Now, Yahweh sees Dode as the most beautiful person who ever lived. And that's the way he'll be returning. So this is the return of God's beloved son. Now, grieving is also appropriate. Yehudim have provoked God. They've caused themselves undue stress over the millennia. They have discounted Yahweh's firstborn, their Messiah and King. And just think about how many have died needlessly from having negated the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Hard even to, uh, to think about how profound a moment this is and how essential this moment is in reconciliation. Um, The reconciliation of Yahweh's people absolutely, unequivocally requires their acceptance of the role Yahweh played as Yosha, fulfilling Pesach, leading to Matzah, Bukodim, and Shabuah, all in year 4,000 Yah. It requires that. So, That's the reason why this is stated here so bluntly, so emotionally. At that time, the shrieks and the shouts will be loud. They'll be mournful in Jerusalem. It will be like the outcry of Hadad Rimnon in the Valley of Medigo. Medigo is all things related to the fruit of the most eminent. It's the basis of Armageddon from Hamah to consider the implications of Gadad, the gathering, invading, penetrating, and attacking of innumerable troops and own all things pertaining to being overwhelmed by these invading troops. Who would have thought that Armageddon was such a powerful term? Mm-hmm. That's Zechariah 12:11. Hadad and Rimnon, um, same fellow. They both represent the archetype of a, uh, of a Jesus, of a dying and resurrecting God, of which there were countless. In fact, every religion had, as the Son of God, a dying and resurrecting God. Mm-hmm. Osiris. Um, dying and resurrecting God. Dionysus. Dying and re- Bacchus. Dying and Tammuz, all dying and resurrecting gods, all died at the same time. <clears throat> they all died as as part of the <clears throat> of uh, what we now call Easter, and they were all born uh, 
at the time that the sun begins to lengthen in terms of, uh, of daylight hours at the winter solstice. This holiday that Christians are celebrating today, which I lovingly call Shitmas, uh, that holiday is based upon the Babylonian myth of the dying and resurrecting God. It's all about the Queen of Heaven and uh, Mother of God, uh, Asherah and the Torah and prophets. Asherah claiming to have been pregnated by the rays of the sun so that she, nine months later, after being impregnated on Ishtar, would give birth to the son of the sun on December 25th. God, by the way, was not born. Uh, Jesus is not the son of God. There was no town called Nazareth at the time. Oh, my. And it's for damn sure Yahweh would not have a bunch of astrologists from Babylon come to commemorate the event. And oh, by the way, it did not occur on the winter solstice when the son of the sun and sun gods are all born. Yosha camped out with us and came into our world. This was Yahweh's soul and a person born the ordinary way um, on Sukkah. Anyway, uh, Hadad and Remnant are dying and resurrecting uh, gods. Um, I have a problem, obviously, of being a bit verbose when I read things like that. I want to share uh, as much as I can, particularly on a day like today, which is the celebration of sure. the birth of the, uh, of the myth of God being born, uh, so that he, of course, could uh, die. So he'd celebrate every year his birth, every year his death. Welcome to the Babylonian uh, pagan religion, Christians. So outside of Canaan and Syria and in uh, their more popular guises, these pagan idols were also known as Tammuz, Cyrus, Adonis, and Dionysus. You know, Adonis means the Lord. Dionysus is Mm -hmm. the Greek god that is most synonymous with the Christian Jesus. Tammuz, of course, is the Babylonian version of him. Osiris is the Egyptian, all the same god. Hadad is the derivative of Adad, which in turn is associated with Adon, the Lord, and with Adonis. Now, for those that would say, you know, Baal means the Lord, that's the title of, uh, if you want a title of Satan, okay, but, you know, Adon, no, 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 that's just, that's a, a honorary title. Well, then why was the Greek god named Adonis. Why was Adad named Adad if Adon was a good thing? And uh, the god uh, that we're talking about here, this mythical god, he was also the prince and the power of the air, and thus a wind and storm spirit. Eh, Very similar to what's said of him in Ephesians, if Ephesians, Two, one, and two. Uh, Paul ought to have known that was he was demon possessed. 
the devil's advocate would go on to further implicate himself in the same letter writing, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Why does anybody believe, Paul? Why in the hell would you have the evil forces in the heavenly places? And why would God want man who is mortal to wage battle against a spiritual being? If I had the biggest bazooka on the block, I live in the Virgin Islands, a lot of people have bazookas, but if I had the biggest one on the block, and I had Hasatan cornered and fired that sucker, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to die. Blow a hole in the wall, maybe? At best. Listen, God does not want us fighting demons. We're ill-equipped to do it. We can't see them. We can't hear them. We can't kill them. They're not going to listen to us. We can't save them. And they can't do diddly squat to us. No, Paul, you're flat out wrong. We do not wrestle against these cosmic powers or the presence of darkness or the evil forces and they're sure as hell not in the heavenly places. Now, working for Satan shall battle against heaven. Maybe he's trying to legitimize his own career. Rimnon was both the name of a Babylonian wind and storm god, and also the title bequeathed to the idol Hadad. In the ancient world, wind was synonymous with spirit, and thus Hadad was a spiritual entity, just like Satan. And speaking of the devil, Rimnon was best known in Damascus, the very place where our buddy Shaul Paul would encounter him. The ancient town of Hadad Rimnon was located about um, what, 11 miles from Mount Carmel. Uh, 11 yeah, yeah, you can look it up. Um, 11 from the site which would become known as ooh, Nazareth to Christians. And that, my friends, is telling. Mount Carmel is the site where the, <laughs> my favorite guy, the very forthright and exceedingly sarcastic Elia, Elijah, made mincemeat of Baal, the Lord, and Asherah, the Blessed Mother along with her uh, and his 850 pagan prophets. Enraged that Elia had ordered the deaths of her priests, Queen Isabel, Jezebel, along with her husband Ahab, the king of Israel, threatened to kill him. It was they who had instituted the worship of Baal and Asherah making their veneration the lone, authorized, and acceptable religion of the land. It was all prophetic of the rise and rule of Roman Catholicism, of their priesthood, of their monarchs, and their animosity toward Yahweh, and their homage to the Lord, 
and the blessed mother of God. Now, 11 centuries thereafter, having forgotten the lesson of Elia's lecture, the legend of the Roman Catholic Lord would grow again with the emergence of their imaginary Jesus of Nazareth. And so in God's typical fashion, Elia will return as a witness on Passover in 2030 to lambast the resulting religion all over again. You know, I'm sure there's lots of people, particularly if you read uh, any one of the three volumes on the Moed Mikre, uh, the uh, Mikre volume, uh, Mm -hmm. which is Invitations, uh, the Harvest volume, or the Moed uh, um, Appointments volume. Or if you uh, were to read, we were talking about this before the show began, uh, the Introduction to God, Volume 1, and now Volume 2. They are exceedingly pejorative. Um, I cop an attitude. I uh, do my my best Elia in in, uh, impersonation. Uh, I do not like Judaism. I do not like Christianity. I do not like Islam. I do not like the numbskulls who parade around as enlightened progressives. I do not like communism. And I do not like conspiracies or the conspiratorialists. And I'm not alone. I'm in really good company. God hates them all. Hates Judaism. Hates Christianity. Hates Islam. Hates conspiracy and hates big government and socialist, secular humanists. Despises them. And so there are those that would say, you know, you you really ought to be uh, kinder and more accepting. You're going to attract more flies with honey than with vinegar. Come on, flies. (laughs) Maybe true, but don't like maggots. (laughs) Not trying to attract them. Excuse me. This is not appealing to me. So when we mention Elia, it's important to know that from Yahweh's point of view, this is the most entertaining fellow that there ever was. This is the guy who who had the gift of gab. This is the fellow that could make mincemeat of uh, the religious. And that's why Elia is coming back. I mean, Moshe is, let's face it, Moshe is a billion times more man than Elia, a million times more man than than all of us who are part of the covenant now combined. Uh, You know, Moshe is the giant among men. And the only person that could rival um, Moshe's overall uh, contribution to the mission totally. of Yahweh would be Dode. Got to be. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you, you've got what I would consider to be overwhelmingly the, the most prolific of the prophets, and a, a man who was exceedingly brilliant, and that would be Yashia. Sure. I mean, these guys Please. are all eminently more qualified to perform the role of Elia, except the role of Elia is beneath them. Don't it's a good stand-up. Messiah, yeah. for crying out loud. Uh, 
Moshe is the great liberator, and, and the Torah is not going to use them for this job of, of uh, ripping the religious apart. But for that job, God picked the most pejorative, the most sarcastic, the most demeaning, and by demeaning, demeaning of the religious and the political, uh, conspiratorial, uh, man, maybe whoever lived, certainly the most um, uh, biting, best evader that uh, he ever um, encountered. Now, Megiddo uh, is uh, where the uh, the Judean king Yoshiau Joshua lost his life to Mitzrayim. During his reign from 640 to 609 BCE, commencing when, believe it or not, he was just eight years old, or there's a real problem of having monarchies, we are told that he walked exclusively in the way of Dode, his father, and did not turn aside to the right or the left. That's lovely. Malekim, 2 Kings, 22-2. His great-grandfather had been King Hezekiah, the man who allowed Yahweh to save Yahuda by observing the Torah, ridding the nation of religion, and then celebrating Chagmatzah of Hezekiah as it says, he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh, doing as Dode had done. Yoshau's grandfather, however, was a retrobate. He turned the temple into a pantheon of pagan idolatry. In the eighth year of Yoshiau's reign, he began to seek the god of his father, Dode. Four years later, when he was 20, he ordered the destruction of all of the altars and images to Baal, the Lord, throughout Jerusalem and Yahuda. Next, he focused upon restoring the house of Yahweh, cleaning it of all religious artifacts. While doing so, the Torah scroll of Yahweh, given to Moshe, was rediscovered. His response was detailed in two Malekim kings, 22 and 23, and two words of the day, Chronicles 34 and 35. Walking in the ways of Dode, Yoshau exposed and condemned Jewish religious practices and uh, astral cults, after which an exclusive relationship with Yahweh was reestablished. It is sort of interesting that while mm -hmm. uh, under normal circumstances, an eight-year-old ruling a, uh, over a kingdom is a really bad idea, uh, look at Dode when he was eight. He saved uh, Israel at eight years of age, uh, took down um, Goliath. And other than Dode, this, this young lad may have been the best king Israel ever had. So it tells you that, it's, uh, that God's criterion for what works does not match our own. Truth notwithstanding, for much of the uh, 19th and 20th centuries, it was commonly agreed amongst biblical scholars that the scroll of the Torah was part of a legendary narrative alluding to the notion that an early predecessor of the Torah was invented by Josiah's priests who were driven by uh, ideological interests 
to centralize their power. Archaeological discoveries and a closer examination of the text have made these scholars appear rather foolish. I have this fellow that's uh, written me a number of times that has this uh, 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 book uh, that was written by a really erudite uh, Jew. Uh, Valediction, I think, of, of uh, Moses is the uh, the name of his book. You know, you start reading it, and he's so articulate. His uh, presentation is is uh, very scholarly. Uh, and so it's appealing from that point of view, but this is the fellow that clearly does not know Yahweh. And he is mm-hmm. making this claim that this uh, belt, which is uh, it's uh, sort of a paraphrase on, uh, on the body in Deuteronomy. Uh, and it has things, uh, you know, it has a, uh, an 11th commandment, which doesn't work because God tells us that there's 10 statements uh, elsewhere. But it has 11th that is, uh, you know, loving your brother. Uh, and it, um, uh, it doesn't have as many uh, instructions in it as you would find in the other Debarium. And, and so this, is this, this uh, fella is claiming that, that uh, because the belt that is written in a, uh, an ancient Hebrew script uh, is probably ancient, and it probably dates back to oh, um, right around the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, maybe a little uh, thereafter, that because it is uh, ancient, it supersedes the Torah, and that it is the true word of God, and that the Torah is not. And you just go and you just think, why is it possible that a smart person can draw such ridiculous conclusions? I mean, I mean, here's the bottom line here, is that... Mm-hmm. that you have the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think there's like 900 uh, texts, manuscripts from the Torah, Prophets, and Psalms, many fragments, some whole scrolls, but there's about 990, I think, is the number of, uh, of manuscripts uh, from the Torah, Prophets, and Psalms. And Tabadim, I think, is the third most prevalent of them. And they all agree with one another and disagree with the belt, this leather belt. And then what you have is this totally separate uh, textual line, and that is the, uh, the Masoretic text. And the Masoretic text uh, is where the Torah and Prophets were removed by those who were hauled off into Babylonian captivity. And so the basis of their text separates from the Essenes who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, by 400 years. So around around 500 BCE, the Masoretic text, what has become known as the Masoretic text, was hauled off into Babylon along with the, the Jews who stayed there. And many of them stayed there. And about 500 CE, about 1,000 years later, they took those texts and they turned it uh, gradually into what we know now as the Masoretic text. And yet the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls agree with each other uh, on 
virtually every major point. They differ by, on average, one word in 14, and most of those differences are minor. And so you have these two with copious proof that have entirely different legacies that agree with each other and hundreds upon the hundreds of manuscripts. And you got this one outlier over here that differs from them. And you're going to say, well, that, that one right there, that's the real deal. We have no idea how these others all came to agree with each other and, and to be different from it. And you just shake your head and say, why would anybody that's got half a brain come to that conclusion? And so I wrote this fellow back and said, what you're claiming is ludicrous. You know, the fellow seems like a sharp young man. He writes beautifully. But he's taken this thing so out of context as to, you know, it's like the conspiracies. You, uh, you remove 90% of the truth, 95% of the truth. You cling to one or two things completely out of context. You blow them out of proportion. You say, hey, look at this. And, oh, it's the opposite of what we've been led to believe. And when any comprehensive review blows the claims out of water. And so that's really what we have here where scholars uh, – regarding the history of the Torah, by all of this have been made to appear as fools. Now, we're continuing to record. I think we're right now uh, just past the broadcast period. Most uh, of our listeners uh, listen on the telephone so they can still hear. And, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, 95% of the listeners to this program are archives. And, quite honestly, we're doing this program to... I catch the ear of Yisraelites as uh, as times become tough and they're looking for answers. And so we'll continue here just a little bit longer if you have the opportunity, sure. Kirk, and, and then sure, uh, we'll pick up uh, next week. Okay. The prophetic proclamations of Yirmiyah began during Yoshau's reign. They focus on the exiled uh, ten tribes of Yisrael. It was against the uh, advice of the prophets that Yoshau, Josiah, went to war against Egypt. The young man made a mistake in that regard. It was the decision that would cost him his life. To his credit, legend would have it that he may have foreseen the potential for catastrophe, which ensued. So he concealed the Ark of the Covenant and its contents inside of a chamber which Solomon had conceived explicitly for that purpose. It was not as uh, if Josiah marched into Egypt to pick a fight. The world around him was in flux with the Assyrian Empire disintegrating. Prior to the rise of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, uh, Egypt under Pharaoh Necho II marched a massive Mm -hmm. army up to the western extremity of the Euphrates to aid the Assyrians against the upstart Babylonians. His mercenaries passed through the great Jezreel Valley, which was blocked by Josiah and his Mm -hmm. Judean army at Megiddo. During the fierce fighting, Yoshiyahu 
was observed by the pharaoh, and he was killed. Necho, whose forces were now delayed and weakened, failed to capture Haran, and that's where they were headed, even when aided by uh, Assyrian forces. It was lamentable because upon his return, Necho imposed his authority over Judea. He blamed the Judeans for having um, delayed him because Egypt and Assyria had formed a pact and they had this alliance uh, against the rising influence of the Babylonians and the Babylonians prevailed and would ultimately rise to, uh, to power. And so he needed someone to blame because potentates like that don't take well. Yeah. No. So they demanded, uh, Pharaoh Necho demanded, four tons of silver and 75 pounds of gold. This would mark the terminus of the Davidic line and the end of Yehuda's independence. was never independent again. With the mention of Hadad Rimnon in the valley of Megon, Megiddo, Yahweh is drawing our attention to all that had and would transpire in this place. It is the line in the sand between political, military, and religious power on the one side and a relationship with Yahweh on the other. And as an aid to our understanding, the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, also means wind. Wind is an outside force which is powerful. It can be beneficial or harmful. It can be felt and inhaled, and yet it cannot be seen. Similarly, the Hebrew word for soul, nephesh, also means breath. It is air warmed and changed by life, and thus is known as the sign of life. But unlike the wind which continues to blow, a man's breath is temporal, signifying mortality. All spirits, good and bad, are immortal, but uh, we as, um, as humans are not. So coveting Yahweh's symbols and therefore counterfeiting them, the Remnon title was chosen by Satan because <laughs> it also means pomegranate. And seeing them as beautiful, Yahweh used pomegranates to decorate the robes of the high priest, beginning with Aaron. It may also have been because of their blood-red color and stain, which was symbolic of the blood shed by the Passover lamb. So in Satan's case, it was symbolic of the death. And Rimnon is from Ramon, which means to be lifted up and exalted. It's the seeds in a pomegranate that Rabbi Mamamides would falsely equate to the 613 laws that he had deduced. He also said it was the same number as the number of bones in the human body. Uh, guess what? There are oh. many more. He was wrong on the number of seeds. He was wrong on the number of bones. And he was wrong on the number of laws. Everything is. Yeah. Besides that, how did you oh, like the show? So Mrs. much for Lincoln. the Rambam. Yeah. yeah, so much for the Rambam. Uh, a fellow covenant member and a man who has devoted uh, his time to fact-checking, yada, yada, Mike, uh, noticed one blustery day uh, that uh, once the blossoms 
fluttered away from his pomegranate bushes, that the resulting star-shaped sepals had a different number of points, which is unique in nature. The majority had six points. Many had five, while some had a seven-pointed crown. Knowing that there had to be a reason for Yahweh to have instructed Aaron to place these three colors of pomegranates on his robe, he deduced that symbolically the ratio between the more prevalent six-spiked and less observed five and seven-crowned sepals represented the three outcomes available to human souls. With six representing the number of man, the majority of pomegranates bud, flower, and fruit, and then fade away. Similarly, the vast majority of human souls will wither away, ceasing to exist after their body that is supporting that soul dies. Turning to the second option, man minus God, represented by five flowers, were fruitless. After dying and drying up the blossom, they were blown away by the wind, over the fence and into the neighbor's yard, into the place of separation. No fruit. Similarly, those who counterproductively led others away from God will spend their eternity in shul over the divide. Whereas the seven-pointed flower, symbolic of man with God, blossomed and grew, bearing good fruit prior to being harvested, lifting up to Shamaim, the heavens. Okay, okay, well, Mike may have eaten too many pomegranates, but it is a good story. <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was I like Mike. Well, I, I want to I be like, like Mike, yeah. Yeah, I like the story. Good, good story. Yeah, and I may have butchered his story at one point or another, uh, so I, yeah. I probably shouldn't have credited him. Uh, we blame, my, we'll my, blame you. With my paraphrase. Uh, yeah, you know, in actuality, his accounting was accurate. The, uh, the overwhelming majority of pomegranates began life with six sepals, with petals alternating between them. Five is the most common uh, pomegranate, uh, or the next most common arrangement, mm-hmm. followed by the seven sepal blossoms. But on the rare occasion that there are eight symbolic of eternal life, these starbursts remain with the fruit and provide an enduring crown for the fruit. There is a singular style in the center of it all with uh, two uh, stigmas to receive pollen. In the most productive flowers, the stigmas are seen rising above the uh, anthers, symbolic of prioritizing God in their lives. Now, while we're on the subject, there are some interesting facts about pomegranates. Uh, it is, uh, and you know, hadad, ribdad means pomegranate. It is mostly a deciduous shrub, which can grow into a small tree. Uh, it is a fruit with berries. And it is native to Yisrael, with more than 50 varieties growing in the land. The flowers are male and female, with the males providing pollen, then falling to the ground. The females bear fruit in their ovaries. It is typically self-pollinating, but can cross-pollinate. Remember, Yahweh would have liked his people to uh, self-pollinate, if you will, rather than cross-pollinate. Don't, don't go over and fuss with those goyim. You're going to get yourself in trouble. Yeah. A more a normal plan. event. But, but at the end, he says that the last days, 
to his people, open the gates, open your doors to the goy. It is typical, uh, typically self-pollinating, but can, as I say, cross-pollinate. The more normal, healthier fruit occurs when the cultures are not mixed, therefore consistent with Yahweh's instructions. The more normal, healthier fruit is, uh, is derived that way. Pomegranates mature very quickly and are among the only fruits to flower from seeds within a year. In their second season, they bear fruit. The seeds sit inside of an epidural sac and feature eight vitamins, thiamine, riboflavin, niacin, uh, panophenic acid, uh, chlorine, uh, C, E, and K. They are ripe with eight minerals, calcium, iron, magnesium, manganese, phosphorus, potassium, sodium, and zinc. Eight is the number of everlasting life. It is also a superfood. Hey, I had the best news ever, uh, Kirk. I should say this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a tendency to uh, stumble over pronunciation of uh, English words and also of Hebrew words and of words in general. I've, I've always shared this. You know, it's, it's nice to share something with uh, with uh, Moshe. I uh, share uh, <laughs> the inability to pronounce words with Moshe. Probably not the attribute you should strive to share with him, but nonetheless, it's He's the one boy, I have. Voice so, for Yahweh, sure. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, and so I'm, I'm reading some of these prophecies in Yashaya, who, who seems to have a, uh, just like I had for a long time, a crush on Dodd. It was my bromance. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yashaya clearly has it for for this for his choder, uh for the nacri for the goy uh because the goy picks up picks up his prophetic statements and says oh, yeah. people during the last generation this is your guy listen to him uh yeah, so waking work so, so old uh old yashia is uh, trying to make Yashia. sense yeah. of what, he, what he's uh, and he is the you know, he's he's uh he's uh, directing the choir here. He's he's really fascinated by this fellow. And he says, you know, he has a stammering tongue. <laughs> I like this dude. <laughs> I didn't know that. Somebody, <laughs> should, really somebody should help yeah. him with his diction. <laughs> yeah. come, come to the wrong place. But it's just perfect. Yeah, you know, yeah, you chose the person who claimed that he had a, uh, a thick and unresponsive tongue to pronounce his name and introduce his name to the world. Uh, a world that says we dare not say it for fear of mispronouncing it and disrespecting God. Well, he had <laughs> he chose, chose a person shit. with a stuttering tongue That's do that. Funny. And so on the last days, he's got a guy with a stammering tongue uh, sharing the word of God. To reintroduce it, yeah. His, yeah, his, uh, his people to reintroduce it. So <laughs> tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Oh, he's funny. Uh, uh, Oh, well, I don't even know where we were, but it's, that's another where good story. Anyway, <laughs> the fruit uh, as... Uh, uh, that's where you are. Yeah, it's comprised. It is comprised of three layers, a hard and edible outer husk, which serves to protect it. The, uh, uh, it takes some work to remove the fruit, and then that husk is discarded. Uh, there is a bitter and fleshy uh, uh, asymmetrical inner uh mesocarp beneath the uh, harsh exterior. Now, look that up in your funk and wagnall. You have the treasure. These amazing little berries uh, containing seeds which explode with flavor and nutrients. 
ancient cultures used pomegranates to remedy digestive disorders, skin lesions, and internal parasites. Today, it is prescribed to aid in the fighting of heart disease and diabetes and cancers. So used to decorate the columns leading into Yahweh's house, his temple, there is ever a likelihood that the pomegranate was uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. And it is also interesting that there is a Babylonian god named after Ramon, pomegranate, Mm -hmm. that uh, Satan encouraged Jawa to eat. This is especially uh, so uh, considering that she wanted to be like a god, and there's a crown on top of each fruit. Isn't that interesting? So that's my story on uh, pomegranates and the story of the history that uh, pertains to this particular period and why that valley and Jezreel is important. It is why all of the things that were said to happen here remind us of, of uh, Elia and what has happened and what's going to happen. Uh, it all ties together to tell the, uh, the same story. And so maybe... Um, a paragraph or two further, and then we'll uh, take a break for uh, for next week. So if we move to the other half of the name, Yahweh listed the uh, the 12 tribes that would be derived from Ishmael and Barashith Genesis uh, 25. This is 12 through 16. Hadad is not only one of them. This tribe came to inhabit Palmyra, the Arabian home of the moon god cult which expired, inspired the Kaaba, Mecca's shrine to moon deities. Allah, Alat, Manat, and Aluza uh, are all prime examples. It was this pantheon which gave rise, a pantheon seems like an exaggeration when it was nothing but a rock mm-hmm. pile. Uh, and the Kaaba is so ugly today, they drape it in, uh, of course, a black curtain, uh, gave rise to Islam. Each was represented by a sacred stone placed inside of the Kaaba, and all too appropriately, Allah lived inside of the black stone. Ishmael's firstborn was uh, Nebaoth. Uh, Josiah identified him with the Nabataeans, people who lived in the Arabian desert just east of the Red Sea. They spoke uh, Arabic and occupied what is today Mecca and Medina. After battling the Assyrians in 668 BCE and again in 703 BCE, these Hagarenes, named after Ishmael's mother, retreated into the Arabian desert where they were safe from attack but also isolated from the civilized world. Their only interaction with advanced cultures occurred as a result of camel caravans and trading. And it was in this vacuum of knowledge and culture that Islam was born. That said, there is an additional level of detail provided in this attack on Jerusalem and Yahweh's conterminous return in the 16th and 17th chapters of Revelation. That account includes the fall of Satan and the whore of Babylon. And since these things are related, let's consider those pronouncements before we uh, complete Zechariah's narrative. So if you start with the 12th statement in the 16th chapter, we were told that Satan uh, and the demon-possessed Torahless One in league with their false prophet who represents the whore of Babylon 
are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the rulers of the world to gather the nations together for war on the great day, Yom Kippurim, of Yahweh, whose name isn't mentioned, the Almighty. They're, they, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megiddo. Then Hebrew, Har means hill. Megiddo is from Megiddon, a compound uh, term which uh, conveys the gathering of armies who plot together in a conspiracy to penetrate, invade, and attack. And those upon uh, banding together are assembled, cut down early in the day. The combination of Har Megiddo is translated into English as Armageddon. Yaokanan's account describes the nature of the beast who will come to wage war at Armageddon. He chronicles uh, Satan's Babylonian ties, and then Yaokanan reveals that this religious disease the adversary has fabricated will be destroyed, along with the conspiring merchants who have supported the whore's activities. Hmm. Can you say the United States and Europe? Uh, There will be uh, weeping and mourning, he says, connecting his uh, portrayal of this day. We hear that those who know Yahweh, uh, the renewed and reconciled Yehudim, will sing Hallelujah, radiating Yahweh's brilliant light, as God returns to annihilate those who have come to wage war against him, as well as his people. And while I place very little trust in anything found in the Greek writings, when the text corroborates the accounts of Yahweh's prophets, it is worth considering it. And truly, there's very little in the book of Revelation that isn't stated. In the Torah, Zach- yeah. Yeah, Zachariah, uh, Ezekiel, um, Daniel, Yashaya, Yermiah, uh, it's... Um, it's all there. In fact, I was, my wife told me uh, she was sharing more uh, insights mm-hmm. as to what's going to happen in Israel and, and with these books and the role that everything plays in the returns of God's people. It says, you don't need revelation. It's all laid out right for us right here. Um, so we will return now to, uh, uh, to discover how the world's going to be mm-hmm. divided and torn apart at the terminus of the time of Jacob's trouble. Um, this is now back to, uh, to Zachariah. It's a long statement, Zachariah 12, 13, uh, 12 and 13. It's a long statement. Let's read it, and we'll leave that sure. in our thoughts as we prepare for, uh, for next week where we'll uh, come back okay. to the statement. Okay. In the land and earth, then the land and earth shall mourn. With the nations and races, political and religious groups, by themselves, boasting about their false prophets, the political and religious divisiveness, along with the social and cultural institutions, with with their discordant rhetoric. Of the house of Dod, also known as Yisrael, isolated and by themselves, boasting about their religious leaders. Their women ever prideful and mistaken by themselves. The political and religious divisiveness of the house of Nathan by itself. And their women by themselves. And divided loyalties and growing schisms of the house of the Loi. 
isolated by itself, along with their wives by themselves, as well as the divisive and discordant rhetoric of the Shimei, separated and mistaken by themselves, along with their wives. Now, it's going to take some serious canoodling to figure out what all of that means and why Yahweh said it. And since it is uh, now um, coming on uh, 9.30 here in the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands, um, mm-hmm. I think we're going to save that for uh, this, this time next week. <clears throat> but I okay. want to thank all of you who uh, joined us again uh, um, uh, a day late uh, for this uh, program. It's wonderful to be with you. What a much better way to spend uh, this day of December 25th than <coughs> studying <coughs> the words of Yahweh and his prophets. So may God bless you all. Look forward to being with you this time next week. Uh, Good night. Thank you. Good night. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.